Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, as we continue our studies in that perplexing book that helps us with perplexing things in life. Tonight, we're going to look at riches once again, when riches hurt. Riches often bring a lot of pain and sorrow, and the preacher recognizes that in verses 8 through 17. So we're going to look at verses 8 through 17 this evening, but I will read to verse 20 to set the context for us. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at at the matter. For a high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase to eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. He shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. What profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly in the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful again for the blessing that you give to us in this world. But we also pray, O oh God, that you, we would ask for forgiveness for the times that we improperly desire them, for the times that we make riches idols in our hearts, and for the times that we do not take the good things you give and thank you for them, and even make them an idol, make them something that we cling to, make them something that we do not desire to lose. And forgive us, O oh God, for this very thing. But we're thankful, O God, that you do give us, by your spirit, a right understanding of money, a right understanding of riches, a right understanding of wealth. And so we ask, O God, that we, your people, would have a sober understanding of what it is, a sober understanding of money and and, and all that that entails. May we not love it. May we not serve God and mammon. But we do pray, O God, in all things we would be content, again, whether we are abased or whether we abound. And we know this is a great lesson and a difficult lesson for us all to a uh, difficult lesson for us all to learn. And we pray that we would do so. And thank you again that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. And thank you that there is an abundant life that we possess now. And that we shall experience in full when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. So be with us now by your spirit. Give us illumination to better understand what is going on in this perplexing book. But thank you, O God, you illumine us and feed us and nourish us with your word. So please do so now by your spirit and for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, perhaps you know the familiar proverbs on money that come from the Bible. The love of money is the root of all evil. That comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
And the other, you cannot serve God and mammon from Matthew chapter six, uh, uh, Matthew chapter six. You see money and the key thing there is the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, we must have a proper balance and understanding of the riches that God gives to us in this world. We have to understand we cannot live on love and fresh air, but we must understand that money and riches do not fulfill us. They do not last. Pursuing them for the sake of pursuing them is simply a pit, a never-ending pit in which we continue to pour our money forever and ever. And remember, the purpose of this book is all about, or one of the purposes of the book is what is the meaning of life? To where do we find eternal things? To where, uh, where do we set our hearts? Where do we look to? And many people, which is a common problem for all of mankind throughout all of history, is the problem of greed, the problem of riches, the problem of desiring such things, but pursuing them only brings vanity and striving after wind. Remember, that's the purpose of the entire book. As we wrestle with inconsistencies, as we wrestle with enigmas, you would think the one who is the wealthiest, the one who has everything, would be satisfied. But that is not the case at all, because the one who has everything continues to pursue and desire more, which is what we see in this book. Last time, which was a couple weeks ago, we saw fear in God's house. What about the house of God, even with perplexing things? Should the house of God be a place where there is no enigmas, a place where there is no perplexity? Well, Sometimes people enter in in a willy-nilly way. Some times people enter into God's house in a rash way without thinking that we come before a holy God. And so perhaps the center of the book, which points to the end of the book, is the end of verse 7 where he says we must fear God. Well, then he, the preacher transitions again to consider what he sees in life under the sun. And he considers greed and the vanity that it brings. Because the love of money only leads to sorrow. And again, it's a common human problem as people pursue it as a means of fulfillment. But you know the saying, money cannot buy happiness. And unfortunately, the opposite is true. Loving it only brings pain and sorrow. It brings pain and sorrow from oppression. Brings pain and sorrow because in it there is no satisfaction. It brings pain and sorrow because the more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you think about all you have more sleepless nights you might have. It also brings pain and sorrow because it can't be taken with us in death. And overall, it just makes us sad as we consider about all we have. And so all those things will be explored in these verses this evening. The preacher tells us how the love of money, the love of riches only brings evil in verses 8 through 17. It only brings sorrow. It only brings sadness, which is what he observes in verses 8 through 17. So we'll look at this idea of when riches hurt under two headings this evening. First of all, the sad reality of greed, verses 8 through 12. And secondly, the severe evil of riches, verses 13 through 17. So the sad reality of greed, verses 8 through 12. And the severe evil of riches, verses 13 through 17. So let's first look at the sad reality of greed in verses 8 through 12. And notice in verses 8 and 9, we see him discuss oppression. We see him discuss corrupt government. We see him discuss the reality of tyranny in this world. And notice what he says. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. Do not be surprised when there's corruption in this world. In fact, he's already talked about 
injustice already in chapter 3 and chapter 4. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. He doesn't explain what that means. He doesn't explain why it is that there is injustice in this world. Now, we unpack perhaps what that could look like. Partiality certainly is involved there. When the place that you think would be the place of justice, which is where judges would ought to render proper verdicts, but in those places, there is iniquity and sin. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we saw how it would be better to be dead than be oppressed. How it would be better to go the way that all must go. It actually would be better if you've never been born rather than be oppressed, because there is no hope for the one who is oppressed in this world. But why is it that there is oppression? The answer to all of life's problems certainly is sin, but another answer to all of life's problems is money. Follow the money. The same thing is true when it comes to corrupt government. The same thing is true when it comes to corrupt officials in this world. That's why there's a connection between verses 8 and 9 and 10 through 17. Because as one considers corruption, you cannot, in government, you cannot but think of money. You cannot but think of riches. You cannot but think of how it came to pass. And namely, it comes to pass through greed. So the fact that there is oppression in this world should not be shocking. The fact that there are governments in this world that don't have the best interest of the citizens should not be shocking. I mean, come on, how is this not comforting with everything we've been dealing with? And throughout all of history, let's be honest, most of the time, most leaders, whatever form of government you want to you know, consider, monarchy, you know, democracy, republic, all those sorts of things, oligarchy, or I guess what that'd be, uh, aristocracy, sorry. So the, the one rules, monarchy, aristocracy, many rule, democracy or republic, the people rule. In every single one of those, there's the one variable, and that's man's sin. There's the one problem that every man is greedy. And so sometimes officials, regardless of which one, turn the other way. And let's, again, let's be honest. Most times in history, most kings are bad. Most all uh, our aristocracies become oligarchies and most people are bad. Even when it comes to democracies, you know, brethren, we've had it pretty good for a long period of time. America's had it pretty good for a long period of time. That is not the norm when it comes to governments in this world. Now, yes, we desire We want good governments according to Romans chapter 13. We want leaders who punish the guilty and protect the innocent. We want governments who leave us alone so that we might be able to engage in free enterprise without any sort of meddling. We want those types of things in this world. The reality is, is the whole book has taught us there's sin. There's corruption. There's wickedness in this world. And if there's remaining corruption in this heart, you better believe that there is corruption in the hearts of many leaders in this world. And certainly I'm not denying that it's a terrible thing to see corrupt governments. It very much is. But it shouldn't be surprising because it has occurred a lot in history. Most of the time, leaders do corrupt things by oppressing people for the sake of their own gain. Even if they might say, we're doing it for your good. Even if they might say we have your best interest in heart, always question that very motive when it comes to government. So you should not be surprised when you see the perversion of those things, when there's impartiality shown, that is the friend of the high official gets off scot-free, whereas the poor, 
who cannot pay, who cannot bribe, is the one who truly is oppressed. So do not marvel at the matter. And he goes on to explain, why is it? How is it that government, perhaps governments we see, avoid being accountable in this world? You kind of see that. Sometimes people just do get off scot-free. Now, we know that God will one day judge the living and the dead, but perhaps sometimes you do see officials just kind of so kind of fade into nothingness and they're fine. They've done a lot of harm, but then they just kind of seem to get away with everything. Well, verse eight for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. This refers to uh, bureaucracy, red tape. One in this form of government watches over another person, in that form of government. One who's higher up watches over that person. They're all watching out and colluding with one another to make sure that they have their own best interests at heart rather than the interests of the people that they rule. Again, the heart, we are wicked. No one loves God. There is righteous, unrighteousness so much so or so much in this world that it should not be a surprising thing for us. They really do not have our best interests at heart. And I'm going to give a Canadian example of this. You all feel like you're being murdered at the pump, right? Do you not feel like you're being murdered at the pump when you go and fill up for 233 a liter when it comes to gas? Brethren, do you realize Canada is sitting on the third largest deposit of oil in the world? How are we paying $2.33 when we have the third largest deposit in the world? And get this, do you know how much we pay in taxes? At least 63 cents on every liter that you fill your car with. That has nothing to do with the benefits of the people, but all about filling, you know, the coffers of the, high, of the people in the high places. There's no way we should be murdered like that at the pump, dear brethren. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't pay your taxes and go fill it up, but I'm just pointing out the fact that we are being, you know, taken and robbed at that very time. So, Yes, I do have a certain government in view here when I say such things. But yeah, high official watches over high official. Higher officials are over them. That's reality. They usually get lost in the shuffle of all the various officials in those places. And what this teaches us, dear brethren, is that there we do not look for a utopia in this world. Kidner says, for all his hatred of injustice... And Kohelet, who I believe is Solomon, hates injustice. He says he pins no hopes on utopian schemes. This world is not our home. Yes, I have certain politicians I'm going to vote for. You may have certain politicians you're going to vote for. You certainly have the right to choose whom you wish to vote for. We do not put our trust in princes, do we, dear brethren? Ultimately, now, yes, there's a time, thankfully, Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time for everything in this world, a time to be born and a time to die. And thankfully, there's a time for the left and a time for the right. There really is. And hopefully, you know, one day that will happen. But, you know, we put our trust in God, regardless of what may come. But again, I think Ecclesiastes is a very good reality check for anybody that wants to create a utopia in this world, whether you're a communist whether you're something else, you want to create some sort of vision for society, there's that always that one variable, man's wickedness and man's sin. Even Deuteronomy, God's good laws given for Israel at a specific time, did the people keep the laws? Did the people do what was right? 
hopefully you all say no because you know your history and that's what vomited them out of the land because they didn't do what God said. So I don't know. I, I know this is all, again, the book is very depressing, but it's very comforting in a depressing way because these things happen. And then verse nine. Now, I don't know that I fully grasp what's going on in verse nine. There were kind of three ways we can take it, but I'll read it and explain the three ways. Moreover, the prophet of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. So perhaps one way to take it is the king should be concerned with providing the best prophet for all, not the few. For all his people, considering the policies that go about not just one special group, but everybody. That's the best way to think, not just for a select people, but for everybody, not just for the king himself, but for his chosen people. So that could be involved there in verse nine. Another way is the king benefits himself from the land. When there's a well-functioning society, proper free enterprise going on, there, are, there is money to go back to the king through taxes in a proper way, right? If you murder the people at the pump, <laughs> and if you perhaps take away goods, if you take, if, you know, things or inflation's running away, then sooner or later that money dries out and the king no longer has any money. And so if the king is really concerned with himself, he ought to be concerned with the people because then he would benefit from the land. That could be what's going on. Even the king himself is served from the field. With one other writer or another writer takes an interesting take on this. He says, perhaps even though there is corruption and tyranny in verse eight, he says, perhaps verse nine buffers the idea that or gives us the idea that tyranny is still better than anarchy. It's still better to have some sort of government than everybody have a free for all. Wouldn't that be better? I don't know. I don't know that I want anarchy. See, anarchy is not the answer to tyranny because then everybody can break into your house and take everything you want, right? I, I don't know. Tyranny or anarchy, it's tough. But he seems to say tyranny seems to be the right option. But still, we ought, the king ought to not violate property rights. By the way, the Eighth Commandment implies you can own stuff. You don't have to share everything with everybody. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. That means you can own things in this world. And people do not have a right to take that from you, whether the one is voted in or whether one has a gun held to your head. They ought not to do that because of the eighth commandment. But there is a very bad example of a king who took someone's property. And remember, too, in Israel, property was important. It was what God allotted to them, what God had given to the people, the specific tribes, specific uh, of clans. God gave them that land. And so remember Naboth and his vineyard in 1 Kings 21? Remember Ahab, that wicked king who married that wicked woman, Jezebel? Remember that he wanted a vineyard or he wanted to build his little garden, but Naboth had a vineyard and it was his. He's like, I cannot, for God has given it to me. And Ahab goes and sulks and then Jezebel comes and says, you're the king in Israel, go get it. And then we see the tragedy that happens there, but we see the violation or perhaps in a bad way or an example of verses eight and verse nine operating in first Kings 21. So that could be what's going on in that verse nine there. Perhaps all of them could be in view. Perhaps the best way to take it though, is the King's King benefits from a well-functioning society. Moreover, the profit of the land ought to be for all, even the King who is served from the field. So there is uh, tyranny. There is corruption in government. Don't be surprised by that when you hear about such things.
Then we transition to see why there is oppression in verses 10 through 12. Notice it's because, again, because of greed. He goes on to describe the evil of greed. We see the evil further in verses 13 through 17. But notice verse 10. Silver and gold does not satisfy. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. Or he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. That's the vanity. The striving after nothing when it comes to riches in this world. That is, people pursue it, but it never fulfills. Remember in Ecclesiastes 3, he says, God has put eternity in their hearts. There is sin in this world. The image of God is distorted. So people try to fill that eternal void with other types of things. And one of those things is money. But money really is a never-ending pit. We've already kind of seen this in chapter 4 with the toil of the lonely. Someone who works hard, someone who toils, but only for themselves in verse 8. He's neither son nor brother to share all his labor, nor is his eyes satisfied with riches. Till finally he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. So there is, so silver does not satisfy. Then in verse 11, verse 11 is tough as well. The whole book is just in a lot of ways tough, but verse 11 is tough. But perhaps what's going on here in verse 11 can be described as more money, more problems. When goods increase, they increase to eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The more money you spend, the more money you have, the more you begin to spend on things. That is perhaps the idea I'd illustrate it this way. You live in a small apartment, then you move to a bigger apartment. For some reason, that bigger apartment, it had all the smaller things there. But so you'd think you'd have more room in that bigger apartment, but all of a sudden it's filled with everything. Well, how did it get filled with everything? Don't we buy more? Same thing is true when our salaries increase, right? We seem to just buy more rather than live at the standard we've been living at. We want to buy more and more, and more, and more. We want to keep up with the Joneses in a general sense. I know we have Joneses here, but in a general way, you know the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. We want to do such things. We often see what other people have, and so we make more. We want to earn more, and sometimes we don't even have the money to buy more, but people still want to buy more anyway, don't they? And it just leads to more money, or I guess more more illusion of money leads to more problems terrible and sad thing to consider and you know what's a sad thing about Canada and I'm not trying to pick on anybody in particular but I'm just using statistics here and if you've struggled with money in the past know that there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ I'm just giving stats okay Canada is one of the most highly indebted nations not just as a government but individually when it comes to households one in five are considered highly indebted so the debt to income ratio I think is three to one for every dollar you earn, you spend $3 in debt. That's not great, is it? And the sad thing is, too, when it, even when you consider a place like Vancouver, when it comes to the affordability, which we all consider the affordability of Vancouver and how it's not affordable. But if you look at the affordability index when it comes to buying a house, a detached home, you know how much you have to spend of your income to be able to afford a home these days? 64% of your income. 64% of your income just going to housing. How is it that we afford such things? I know some of you perhaps were bought, you know, in another time, but this is where the time we're living in right now. 
We live in an expansive place. We live in an indebted society that just keeps spending, spending, spending. Now, I was listening to a podcast a couple of years ago on perhaps why this could be the case. And the illusion sometimes can be in one's net worth. And in 2015, 2016, when all the homes in Vancouver increased a lot in price, not that the people's salaries increased in price, but because their net worth increased in price, they wanted to live at where their net worth is. So what do they do? Start to spend more to meet that, that threshold. You see, the more money we have, the more problems that we have. And the more perception of money we think we have, the more problems that we do have. And sometimes when we make more money, again, you know, perhaps even to bring it home a little bit more, again, going back to that apartment type analogy, you probably have something that you just could keep buying all the time, right? Even you more money, I have more money. Good, I can buy something else with that. Books for me, can't stop buying books. I don't know what it is for you, but you, there's probably something you can't stop buying, but we can all buy those things. But the point is more money, more problems. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And so what profit have the owners except just to look at them? I can look at my goods. Great. That's wonderful. But one day it's going to pass away. The vanity in Ecclesiastes 2. I sought all these things. I had all the wealth. And Solomon was the richest man ever, maybe. And he said, it's all vanity. I just looked at it. I just stared at it. And sometimes we have too many things that we stare at in this world. And the problems begin to snowball. So that's probably what's going on in verse 11. And then in verse 12, one who has riches doesn't sleep well. Again, you'd think that'd be the opposite, right? You have to worry about money. You have to worry about finances. Everything's fine. Verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. That is, the poor has nothing to lose and has sweet sleep, whether he eats little or very much. Hard work, daily bread, nothing to lose. Doesn't have all the stress that more things bring. Owning a house, which I don't own, but I surmise that owning a home brings a lot of stress. Because you have maintenance that you have to take care of. You worry about that. You worry about how you're going to pay the mortgage, all those things. Some people in this world don't want all that stress, do they? Now, a lot of people, what's interesting, who live, you know, are homeless. Some of them are homeless by choice. They actually don't want all the stress of owning a ton of things. Because it brings a lot of stress in this world because it causes us to lack sleep. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. He might be targeted from the poor. Poor might come and steal from him. He might have a lot of things like, what if I lose all my things tonight? More money, more problems, no rest. And perhaps the one who is wealthy does a, or, or, or the one who's poor has to work daily. And he has nothing to lose and only has to worry about what he has. So... The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Sad reality of greed. And so I think a clear application ought to be in any case, this is really the Old Testament verse of 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is the root of all evil. So brethren, you know what? The two applications that come from this are, don't love money. 
We can have money. If you have money, great. Praise God for that money. If God has given you a good ability to run a business, good ability in your job, good ability in certain things, thank him for that. Thank him for the wealth that he gives. It's not wrong to do that. We're going to talk about building wealth for families in verse 14, but it's not wrong to do those things. The problem is loving it. The problem is if you cling to it. The problem is if that becomes your God instead of the Lord God most high. That's why it's the love of money is the root of all evil. So we ought not to love money. Money is not going to solve all our problems. You know, you know what someone who really is, uh, what, where riches actually comes from? I've heard economists say this many times. It's not those who make a lot of money, but those who keep, our, keep their money. Those, not those who make a lot of money, but those who are able to keep their money. Because some people who make a lot of money spend their money, don't they? There are many sad stories Unfortunately, very common stories of professional athletes who go broke. They've never been taught how to save, never been taught about taxes. Oh, that boogeyman from the government, never been taught those things. They just think, here's my salary, here's how much I spend, I can just blow my money. At the end of their career, some people make millions, tens of millions, and have nothing in the end. The love of money is the root of all evil. And so it's not just don't love money, brethren, but Learn the joy of contentment, whether you are abased or abound. In chapter 7, verse 14, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. God gives you stuff in this world. Thank him for that. But in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Contentment is a very hard thing to learn, isn't it? That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, I learned how to be abased and how to abound. It's because it has nothing to do with our external circumstances. We ought to be content with the things God has given to us. It really is an internal, subjective thing that God gives, a gift that God provides. And we ought to ask him to help us to to be content. And even that phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that's the context. He strengthens me to be abased and to have nothing, but he strengthens me to know how to have a proper, sober understanding when I truly do abound. We must learn contentment, dear brother. And that's why Jeremiah Burroughs' book is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. But it's a delightful, joyful submission to the thing, the, play, uh, the, the times and circumstances God has placed us in. No grumbling. No murmuring. Grumbling and murmuring is unfortunately a trait that we probably all share together, but we ought not to murmur or grumble, but thank the Lord God for all that he has given and joyfully submit to where he has placed us in this world. Doesn't mean if you're in a certain job and you want to pursue another one, you can do that. But if God shuts the door, God has shut that door. Doesn't mean you can't flee to another country, but if you're concerned about how this country is going, but means we must but we still must submit wherever god has us contentment is tough and we pray that god would help us to be content and not love money because it brings evil which is what we see in our next point so that was the sad reality of greed let's look then at the severe evil of riches verses 13 through 17 more dis- no more depressing things I'm, this is not going to be the most uplifting sermon ever but hopefully in a very roundabout way it is but in any case verses 13 through 17 When riches hurt, the preacher sees a severe evil, verse 13. 
This is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, which is kept for their owner to his hurts. And again, it's Solomon. He's observing. He's recognizing how the world works. And let's be honest, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that money cannot buy happiness in this world. You can simply observe it and see that it is striving after wind. Now, even though he observes, he understands God has made the world in a certain way. He understands God has ordered the world in a certain way, but he also is grounded in his covenant relationship with his God. And so he says, this evil thing I have seen under the sun, a common problem known to man. And it is riches kept for their owner to his hurt. He goes on to explain what that is in verse 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. One, it's taken to you die. Verse 14. For those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. And perhaps the language there shouldn't be misfortune, but bad business. Sometimes people make bad business decisions and that happens. Sometimes there are situations where people who are rich lose everything. Sometimes, perhaps through war, maybe no fault of their own that way, people lose everything. In the 2008 crash, there was a lot of people who lost a lot of things. The sad lesson of that very thing. We might have much, but it can be taken away from us in an instant. Even before we die, even before we pass, we can still lose everything that we possibly have. And perhaps we're feeling like that now with runaway inflation and talks of recession in this world, right? I know you all watch the news and consider everything going on and the inflation that's occurring and it's going at a rapid rate. I understand that. But take comfort, brethren, you're going to die one day. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, here, you're going to die. <laughs> you know, doesn't that, isn't that what God teaches us in Psalm 90? Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Yes, brethren, I don't want you to lose everything. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to die until it's God's timing. I don't want that. But there is kind of a comfort in that, isn't there? If this world is going to end and one day our life is going to end and one day all the sadness that we see and endure and all the perhaps riches that we lose and the hurt that it brings will one day shall end. And so it is a great comfort to the believer, but a great sadness to those who pursue riches for the sake of riches, they're going to perish. Those things that you like can be gone in an instant. If one market crash or one terrible policy, it's all gone. And notice the sadness of that continues. Verse 14, when he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. The implication is it's good to save and leave an inheritance to your children. Lest they become beggars. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. That is, perhaps, you know, even it, there's that tension with Ecclesiastes too. He has all this good stuff, the preacher. But he says, what if my son isn't very smart and sharp and good with the money? What if he's a fool and I just leave it all to him and there's nothing there? Well, yeah, that's a problem, but that's the tension of this world. Yet it's still good to make sure, in this case, the son does not starve. So when he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. That's a sad thing. No riches to pass down. But also, he's going to die. Verse 15, and really till 17. The riches of death, or the riches that die in death. We've already seen this in the book. Death is the great leveler, isn't it? The wise and the foolish, they die. We see there's a time to be born and a time to die. We see how death teaches us we're but worms. 
And it's better to be dead than oppressed, chapter four. And today it's, you know, one day we're all going to pass. And he says, verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return. Job 121, hopefully is in your mind where Job says that very thing. Naked I came into this world. Is Job not an example of one who had everything and everything was taken away from him? I mean, everything was taken away from him except his life. And again, the book of Job, I've said this a lot, but it, Job, God never answers Job. It's always about, Job is about glad consecration to God in whatever circumstance we are in. That's tough, isn't it? I'm not trying to belittle the sorrows that people endure. I'm trying to put it in perspective as Ecclesiastes does and as Job does for us that uh, everything is from God, the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. Naked I came, and naked shall I return. And notice, to go as he came, he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry in his hand. He doesn't get to take his toys to heaven. I think I've said that before when I was a kid. I thought I could take my toys to heaven. Well, we're not going to be taking anything with us in our dying time. Nothing will be taken away. And this is certainly quoted in 1 Timothy 6. In 1 Timothy 6, 7, he says that very thing. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, isn't it? Godliness with contentment is great gain. And he says, nothing we shall take, or he quotes very similar to that. He shall take nothing from his labor, which may carry in his hand. Nothing. When we pass, all of that is ours, shall be divided among family. Some of it shall be sold in estate sales. Your favorite thing, your favorite whatever, favorite clock, gonna go. Maybe your children don't want your clock, so they're gonna say goodbye to your clock. Some of it will be taken to goodwill. It's just gonna be dumped for somebody else. Again, sorry to be very depressing, but that, I'm sorry. This is just the reality of things that happen in this world. When you pass, your things shall be taken away. And if I can just say, parents especially, Make it so that it's easy for your children to deal with these things. Show them where, you know, have everything organized before all that happens. That is a great blessing to your children. So they don't have to go figure out where everything is. Again, really sorry about that. But again, it's part of life. Nothing I take. Nothing. No money. No things. Nothing we take with us in this world. And what's so interesting, too, is when we all pass Family gets weird about money too, right? Thankfully, we won't have to worry about family being weird about money. But for some reason, if great Aunt Ethel is dying, all of a sudden, the cousin twice removed wants to be around Aunt Ethel, who he hasn't talked to in however long. You want to know why? The love of money is the root of all evil. And people get weird about money. Families get weird about money. It's just... Money is the root of all evil, really. The love of it is the root of all evil. But in any case, we take nothing with us. So be encouraged by that very thing we take nothing with us then verse 16 and 17 continues it's a severe evil it just leads to darkness this also is severe evil just exactly as he came so shall he go again continuing what he said continues in this depressing cycle of death and riches and kidner says money spoils both in getting and losing all of it and so what profit has he who has labored for the wind? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, striving after wind. Money is just a piece of paper, isn't it? 
And unfortunately, it's losing value every time the inflation increases, right? I mean, it is. It's just nothing. It's just a sign of something signified, right? Money, there's no nothing intrinsic in that piece of paper unless someone tells us what that is. That's a scary thought, but that's the reality of a market like we live in. But in any case, we get, we lose. It's all evil. What profit is there striving after wind? And then notice verse 17, even the day of the rich as he lives is a day of darkness. He eats in darkness, much sorrow and sickness and anger. Perhaps what he is saying here and with what has been said already is that from the moment one lives, to the moment one dies, it's just a day of darkness all the time. Let's be honest, without Christ, it's a day of darkness all the time. Striving, pursuing after when it brings vexation, the language of sorrow there brings sickness, it brings anger. Shows how depressing a life is without God, doesn't it? Shows how depressing a life is without riches that last forever. And we will see in verses 18 through 20 again that tension. Well, God does give it to us, give good gifts, and it ought to be used in the right way. But the problem is when we pursue riches, in a wrong way. So I'm sorry I'm ending on a depressing note or doing the depressing part first. Next time will be more encouraging in verses 18 through 20, but there is a silver lining for all the depressing things we see here. What all these things are meant to do as we read it as the people of God, we know again that there is something greater for us. And all the providences that we endure in this world are for what purpose? To teach us to fear God. Hopefully it teaches all men to fear God, but there's still so much sin, but it ought to teach us, especially as Calvinists, to fear God and to trust in his ways and to treasure the things of God above all. That's what all this depressing talk is meant to do, to direct our attention to the one who can kill the body and the soul, right? Not just the one who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and the soul. So that though we lose everything, we have everything in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? We ought to take great joy and comfort in those things. What does it profit the man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What benefit is it if you're the richest man in the world, but you're going to die and everything you own is going to decay? What benefit is that very thing? That's what God's providence teaches us, that we ought to fear him. And that's the purpose of the book doesn't take away the enigmas, doesn't take away the tension, but it teaches us whatever we encounter, we must always fear God and keep his commandments. That is the end of the whole matter, right? Things don't always work out as we wish. Things are not always fair. But God is making all things right. And as we walk this world, we fear him and keep his commandments. And thankfully too, dear brethren, even when there's corruption like verse 8, Again, that's all part of God's providence too. And even when the world burns, do we not have a higher king we call upon who has power in this age and the age to come? Ephesians chapter 1, 21. Yes, we want tyranny to end. Yes, we don't want to live under tyranny. Brethren, if we do, is there not one who reigns higher than all and one who shall make his enemies his footstool? And is Christ not in control of all things? So if Christ is in control of all things, 
what's there to worry about? He reigns on high and reigns supreme. And thankfully in him, we have everlasting treasure, Matthew 6. Kidner says, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. And that comes from Christ, who is the bread of life, who gives us bread that lasts and satisfies forever, who gives us water that in which we shall never, are never thirst again. In him, we have life and life abundantly, don't we? That is where true happiness lies. That is where true hope lies. Not in the fleeting things of this world, because the things of this world are passing away. But those who are in Christ shall remain forever. And brethren, if you're in Christ, though you have nothing, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So brethren, take great comfort and encouragement that we know the high King of heaven. We know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom there is everlasting riches. If there are any here today who do not know Christ, everything that you love, everything that you treasure shall pass away. Believe on this King, believe on this Christ, and you shall have life forever and abundant life forever. So let us pray. Oh God, we are thankful that we can come without money and buy and eat. We're thankful, oh God, that we can come and be satisfied in you. And we're thankful that this has nothing to do with the things that we bring, but according to your mercy and grace and goodness. And thank you, oh God, that you teach us that this world is passing away and that you teach us that there are greater things that await your people because of what Christ has done for us. And we know that we are undeserving even of the temporal blessings you give, but even more so we are undeserving, oh God, of the spiritual blessings that you provide. And so we pray and ask, oh God, that we would worship and praise you for all these things, that we would hallow you and not forget all the benefits that you've given to us. And we would pray, oh God, that we would praise you for the good food you've given, good clothing on our backs, good shelter to live in. We pray that we would even praise you moreover, oh God, for the spiritual blessings, for justification, for sanctification, for promise of glorification because of what Christ has done for us. So we pray, oh God, that we would set our eyes upon the things that are above. We pray that you'd forgive us for our grumbling and murmuring and complaining. Please forgive us for loving money and riches. Please forgive us for not being content with the things that you've given to us. Teach us contentment, we pray. And we know it's such a hard thing. And we're thankful, oh God, that one day this world shall pass. And, the new, and one day we shall pass. And we shall be with Christ in paradise. And we shall be in the new heavens and new earth when he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the dead. Thank you that these things endure. And these things are everlasting. And so we ask, oh God, that you'd help us to fear you even now. Help us to put our faith in you even now. Help us to put our trust in you even now. For you are a great God who does so many good things. And we ask in the meantime, give us a right understanding of riches, a right understanding of money, a sober understanding of the blessing that it is, but a sober understanding of the sin it can bring. And keep us and protect us from that sin, we pray. And in doing so, God, may we be content wherever you place us. Forgive us, be with us, wash us afresh in the blood of Christ, we pray in the name of our Lord. Amen.